Esther chapter 6 is where we will be this morning, so let me invite you to turn there in your Bible. Esther chapter 6. When unexplained things happen in life, we often attribute them to several different things. Sometimes we may attribute them to a stroke of luck or you know, just merely a coincidence or a fortunate set of circumstances. Maybe the stars were aligned, we've heard people say. Maybe it's because of our horoscope said that it would be that, that, that way today. Or sometimes we just attribute it to just sheer chance. And that may be what it looks like from a worldly perspective when unexplained things happen in life. But from a Christian worldview, we understand that there is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as good fortune as if it's, it's uncontrolled in some way. And the horoscopes are really uh, just a big hoax. We understand that. Everything that happens in life, we understand as a Christian. Everything that happens in the universe was planned by God and is ordered by God. God is the governor of all things, of every single circumstance, including the unexplained ones. We'll see today that that God is powerfully working in the background in this situation. And this is what theologians call providence. This is God's providence working in all of those little, minute areas that are often unexplained. And what we're going to see is that God is the one who's doing that. Haman here is on the rise. And the Jews, you remember, are on the, on the brink of distinction, uh, extinction, I should say. They're on the brink of being annihilated within uh, a few short months. And this is where we would expect God to come like He did at the Red Sea in dramatic power or like He did with the plagues before the Red Sea in dramatic power. Or, or maybe like he did with the sons of Korah where he opened up the earth and swallowed all the evil people. Maybe he could do that with Haman and King Xerxes and allow his people to remain. Or maybe God could send a famine. And then Mordecai could come forward as the man of wisdom like he did with Joseph. But instead, we get chapter 6, verse 1. Notice what it says there. Chapter 6, verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep. Instead of God coming in some dramatic way, God powerfully coming from the stars or from the sky, from raining down fire or opening up the earth, it says the king could not sleep. And this is our God. This is how God works in our era often, in, in our time period. He works in the background, often in unnoticed ways. And when He does, He always does what He wants to do. He's always accomplishing what He wants to accomplish. Let's read this chapter here, beginning with verse 1, Esther chapter 6. This is the Word of God. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, 
that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horse back through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. The so-called fortunate or coincidental or lucky events that happen in life really are not those things at all, but rather they are the providential outworkings of an almighty God. All these things that we see, we're going to see several, so to speak, strokes of luck in this story. But what you're going to find if you understand the rest of Scripture is that those are not strokes of luck at all, but rather it is God providentially working because He is the almighty God. Notice these supposedly fortunate events that lead to Mordecai's honor in verses 1 through 11. First, the king, in verse 1, just happened to have trouble sleeping, didn't he? It says, during that night the king could not sleep. And as is keeping with the rest of the book of Esther, we don't have God's name mentioned here, but we know that it wasn't that he just happened not to be able to sleep, but rather that God made him not sleep. And this is um, really comes to the uh, we're coming to the climax of the story. Really, th- this is the turning point of the story because up until this point, you have Haman going on one route, trying to kill the Jews and specifically Mordecai even uh, e- even quicker, and then you have Esther going on another route, trying to save the Jews and herself. And now we need to come to a place where we have a resolve. What's actually going to happen? Who's going to get their way? Is Haman going to be able to go before the king and get what he wants? We'll see that he's actually in the outer court in this passage, ready to ask if if Mordecai can be hung. Or is Esther going to get her way? 
Is she going to go before the king like she has, we saw last week, and allow the Jews to be saved? What's the king going to do? Well, during the night, it says here in verse 1, the king could not sleep. Literally, the sleep of the king fled from him. That's how it reads literally in the Hebrew language. The sleep from the king fled from him. You ever been there? Okay, for him, this is an act of God. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they understood what was going on here, the, the, the authors of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is how they translated it. The Lord kept sleep away from the king. So although the word, the, the, the phrase there, the, 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 um, the, the name phrase, the Lord, is not in the Hebrew language, they included in it included it in their Greek translation of the Old Testament because they knew what was going on. It was the Lord that kept the sleep from the king. And this is important because we under we must understand that this was not a stroke of luck, but this is God providentially working in the background even in the, within a, the heart or the body of a wicked king to accomplish what he wants. To change the course of what's going to take place. That's God working. So the first supposedly fortunate event is that the king couldn't sleep. The second one is found at the second part of verse 1, and that is the king just happened to have the chronicles read to him in order to go back to sleep, apparently. The second part of the verse says, So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. He just happened to ask for that instead of the latest magazine or or you know maybe have some entertainment come in front of him. Instead, he asks for the, the chronicles to be read. Do you realize what he's doing here? He's having the chronicles of his life, of his reign as the Persian king, read before him. What's happened in my reign? And so someone comes before him and starts reading. It would be the equivalent of someone reading to you the congressional record. Pretty exciting, right? What, what other cure can you think of for insomnia? Maybe watching C-SPAN. That's, that's the idea here. He's watching some... Some just some boring coverage of, of some past events, perhaps. He's having the Chronicles read. And apparently these were read throughout the night. It wasn't that the very first thing that the person came to was Mordecai uh, foiling this plot against his life. Instead, what's happening is because it's in the night, we find here, verse 6, during the night he couldn't sleep, and what we're going to find out later is that it's in the morning when Haman is out in the court. He's apparently out there early in the morning ready to present before the king. Here you go, king. Here's my idea. Let's kill that Jew Mordecai. And so apparently this is being read all throughout the night until he gets to the place where he finds out about Mordecai having saved him. So the first thing is that the king had trouble sleeping. The second apparent fortunate event or or lucky event, we could say, is that he had the Chronicles read. The third one is in verses 2 and 3. And that is that the king happened to just hear about Mordecai's foiling of the plot, his protection of the king. Verse 2 says, It was found written that Mordecai, or what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands upon King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the third is that 
the third apparently lucky event is that he comes across in the reading of this congressional record, the, the reading of his chronicles of his reign, that Mordecai had foiled his plot. You remember what happened there. Turn back to chapter 2 just to refresh your memory. Chapter 2, verse 21. This had happened five years earlier. And uh, this is as uh, right after Esther be, is selected to be the queen as she's chosen after she's chosen as a result of this immortal, immoral pageant that's placed that, that's put on. Chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he's some sort of official, Big Thana and or Big Thane and Tiresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So when we went through that, I said that that last phrase there is important. It was written in the book of the Chronicles. If that had not been recorded, then the course of history would have been changed certainly God would have, had to, would have had to intervene in some other way but it was written in the chronicles the king did fail to sleep he did ask for the records to be read to him and he did come across that story five years later and this just happened to have this just happened to take place on the night when Haman was preparing to talk to him before Haman comes into the picture the king says, what have we done for Mordecai? What have we done for him? And his servants say, you know, we haven't done anything for him. And so the king's thinking, okay, where's my closest advisor? Who's out in the court? Do I have any advisors out in the court? And just as he asks that question, guess who happens to be there? Here's another stroke of luck, so to speak, that takes place in this story. That Haman just happened to be out in the outer court ready to come in. And notice why he is there in verse 4. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace. Why was he there? Here it is. In order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai. He just happened to be there. He had been preparing. Perhaps he pulled an all-nighter as well. Perhaps Haman was coming to a place where I have to go before the king before this gets out of hand. What if other people stop, start watching Mordecai and following him, not giving me honor like Mordecai's not giving me honor? So he needs to be killed today. That's why he has the gallows made so quickly. Maybe it was that he was waiting for the gallows to be finished, and now that they're finished at this time of the morning, he can go before the king and say, hey, we, I've set up this 75-foot gallows near my house. Is there any way that I can uh, have... Mordecai hung on them because he has been defiant against me. And really he's being defiant against you because he's rejecting my authority. And so the king couldn't sleep. He asked the records to be read. He comes across Mordecai's protection of him. Haman just happens to be out in the court. Number five, the fifth stroke of luck, so to speak, is that Haman just happened to have been in the court. Verse 5 reads, The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Haman has arisen early, or perhaps, as I said, he had been staying up all night in order to prepare his speech, and the king says, let him come in. The sixth stroke of luck is found in verses 6 through 9, and that is that Haman just happened 
to have an honor parade already thought up for himself. Because when the king goes to ask him, what ought I to do for a person that I want to honor? Haman's already got it decided in his mind. I love this section. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe and so on. He goes on with this great pomp and circumstance that he wants to have done to himself. One of the reasons I love this section so much is because we as the reader, even if we haven't gotten any farther than chapter 6, verse 9, we know more about what's going on than Haman or the king know. Let me show you why I say that. Look at verse 3. What does the king know? What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Okay, so the king knows that he wants to honor Mordecai. Haman doesn't know that. And notice what what we know about Haman that the king doesn't know. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in and uh, says, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? So we know this about the king. He wants to honor Mordecai. And we know this about Haman, that Haman wants to thinks that he's being honored himself. And so we have this, this story that's coming together where both people don't know what the other person is talking about, but we as the readers do, even though we haven't even read the rest of the story. Because the author gives us a window into their, their minds, their understanding. Haman thinks, you know, proudly like we would expect him in verse 6. You know, how, who else would the king want to honor? This is what we'd expect of a proud person to always be thinking of himself. He's so obsessed with himself that when there's an opportunity for honor, he thinks it's because of him. And in verse 7, Haman says, this is what ought to be done. He doesn't take any time. You know, let me get back to you, king. He already knew what should be done for a person who should be honored. Why? Because I believe that Haman had already thought through this for himself. As a proud man, he already knew what kind of honor he wanted. That when the king came up with an opportunity to honor him, this is what he would do if he had the choice. And so he asked for these several things. Verse 8, wear the king's royal robe. Ride the king's horse. Have the crown placed on the head of the horse. And then let one of the noble princes dress him up in this way and lead him on the horseback through the city square. Why? Verse 9. So that the people perhaps would think that he was the king himself or at least least on the same level as the king. See, a person's coming into town with the royal robes, with the crown, well, the crown apparently is on the horse here, but with the king's horse and and apparently people would probably think this is the king coming or at least somebody that's very close to the king. In Haman's mind, this would be perfect because he would pass by the, the king's gate and you know who would be in the king's gate? that Jew, Mordecai. And he may not bow down to me, he may not tremble at my presence, but he's going to see me in a place of great honor. And if that doesn't humble him, I don't know what will. So this is an opportunity for Haman to gloat in his glory. So this is what he says ought to be done. So all of these fortunate events that have already been really working in the background leading up to this time when 
the reversal of fortunes are taking place. Instead of Haman being honored, Haman's going to be demoted. Even next week, we're going to see that he's actually uh, we're we're going to see that he's hanged. But but instead of uh, Mordecai being hanged and killed and dishonored, Mordecai is actually going to be honored, and Haman's going to be moved to the place of dishonor. And so that leads us to verses 10 and 11, where we see that these supposedly fortunate events, these lucky events, lead to Mordecai's honor. You think about the coincidences that lead to the reversal of fortunes for these two men. The king couldn't sleep. He asked for the chronicles to be read. They were read throughout the night. They got to the place where Mordecai had protected the king. Haman just happened to have been preparing a a statement before the king, so he was there instead of someone else. Instead of another advisor whom the king would have talked to at that time. And Haman just happened to be in the outer court at that time. And he just happened to already have planned what was going to happen to Mordecai, the honor of leading him around on this royal steed. And so after Haman lays out his plan of what ought to be done, the king reveals what he was thinking. You know, Haman, I wasn't thinking about you. I was thinking about this Jew, Mordecai. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. You can just sense the knife that was placed into Haman's gut when he realized that the king wasn't talking about him. Why would... I mean, uh, let's just continue on here. So, Verse 11, So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on the horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. At the end of verse 10, the king says, Don't fall short of anything that you said to do. So don't change anything. He didn't know that Haman was thinking about himself, but don't change it. Do exactly what you said you would do, but do it to Mordecai the Jew. Now this is interesting because this is going to come into play, I think, next week when we see this request that's given to the king that he recognizes that Mordecai is a Jew, and yet, who is it? What people are destined to be killed here in about nine months? It is the Jews. But what we're going to see next week is that the king, I believe, didn't know that the Jews were going to be killed. You say, wait a second, how would you not know? Haman came and talked to him. But remember, Haman didn't name the, the group of people that he wanted to kill. He only named... Uh, he, he basically just said, these people are dishonoring me and we need to kill them. And so that's going to become, in, become important later. And this should not be surprising because remember, Queen Esther didn't know anything about it either. In chapter 4, remember how she found out? It was Mordecai had to send a copy of the edict and tell her the exact amount of money that Haman promised to pay if they would be killed. And further... Remember, the king actually handed over his signet ring to Haman. So Haman could write out the law. He first asked the the king if he can do it. The king says yes, but without telling the name of the people. Then he writes out the law, making specific reference to the Jews so that the people who read it would understand. And then Haman takes the king's signet ring and stamps the king's approval on it without the king knowing the actual people. I say that because... That's going to become important next week, or or two weeks from now, I should say. Esther was 
not, was clueless to the Jews being killed. She just thought Mordecai was out there mourning for something. She didn't know what, so she sends him some clothes. He says, no, you don't understand. This is a national dilemma here. This is going to be a catastrophe. We're all going to be killed, including you and your household. She finds out from Mordecai, and the king will find out from Esther the actual identity of this ethnic group. So if we took verses 1 through 11 and we showed them just to a common person out on the street, we could say, what do you think's going on here? Help them to understand what the rest of the story that's going on and not mention God at all. And you know what they would say? They would attribute it to? They would attribute it to one of those things that I mentioned at the beginning. A stroke of luck, a series of, of fortunate events, Right, The stars were aligned that day. It just happened to work out. Maybe a, a set of coincidences. But that's not what's going on here at all. Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. And you can just imagine the gloating that Mordecai must have done and the boiling, seething hatred that was within the, the heart of, of Haman as he has to go out in front of this horse and say, this is what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. He has to parade him around the city. And this led to, of course, a great depression upon Haman in verses 12 and 13. Mordecai returns to the king's gate after being honored, and Haman returns home. Mordecai goes from a place of mourning, just not a day earlier, to honor and joy, and Haman goes from a place of great joy, remember being honored by the queen, being at this VIP banquet, to a place of great dishonor, having to lead that wicked Mordecai through the city. So Haman hurries home. We found in verse 12 that he covers his head in mourning. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, if we want to try to picture that today, it would be like someone just not wanting to talk to anybody, putting up their sweatshirt, putting on their sunglasses and just leave me alone. Okay, I don't want to talk. It was a shameful time for Haman. And he tells his wife in verse 13 and, the, and his friends and they advise him what they ought to do. And they initially recognize. Zeresh says here in verse 13 at the end, if Mordecai before him who you, whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. They saw this big house of cards that Haman had set up, as they saw that it was starting to fall, and that Haman, you're in big trouble now. Because when the king finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and that he's going to be killed, then you're going to be dead too. Or, or, or you're going to be dead probably in his place. If your enemy, Haman, is being exalted by the king, then that must mean that you are going to be destroyed by the king. Well, this leads to this second banquet in verse 14. And while they were talking to him, they, the servants come in and escort him away. Haman, it's time to go to the second banquet, the one that, remember, that, um, that the queen had ordered. This was the one where she was going to tell him, the king, what was going to happen. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that stories like this go against the grain of our thinking. Because if we are are truthful, we want to believe in luck. We want to believe in chance, don't we? Because it helps explain some things that are otherwise unexplainable. 
What do I mean by that? Why, why would we want to believe in luck? Well, in one case, we want to believe in luck because we think that Christians ought to be luckier than non-Christians, right? We, we think that that ought to be the case. If It's the Christians who should hit the lottery. It's the Christians who should receive the free vacations to Hawaii. It's the Christians who should be scoring the game-winning touchdown. It's the Christian who should stumble in onto a once-in-a-lifetime job opportunity, who should get the promotion. Why? So that we as Christians can give all the praise to God. We would really proclaim His name. We would spread His fame, wouldn't we, if we were luckier than these non-Christians. But let me give you several reasons why Christians, I believe, from the Scriptures are not luckier okay, in the world's sense of understanding. Not luckier than non-Christians. They don't have better fortunes in this life. Number one, if the life of every Christian were a life of perpetual good luck, wouldn't everyone want to be a Christian? If our lives were just a series of perpetual lucky events, wouldn't everyone want to be that? You say, well, what's wrong with that? That's a good thing, right? And everybody would want to serve God. No, everyone would want to serve themselves. Because what that tells them is that life is not about serving God. It's about serving our pleasures. And so if you become a Christian, you can have all these good things happen to you in this life. And that's actually a misunderstanding of what the Christian life is about. It's not about a series of lucky or good events from the world's perspective. You know, things like hitting the lottery or getting that job promotion. That's not what the Christian life is about. You know, there are sadly several Christian, so to speak, Christian movies out there that promote this sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel. That if you come to Christ, everything's going to be taken care of. Your marriage is going to get better. Your bank accounts is going to get bigger. You're going to restore all the relationships you once had. You're going to have a life of great wealth and prosperity. Well, that's not the Christian life. Because often when a person comes to Christ, it actually makes their relationships worse. Even Jesus Himself said, Who are my mother and my brothers? It is those who listen to my word. Okay, At that time, His family didn't even believe in Him. His brothers didn't believe in Him. There was some tension at home. Oh, he's trying to this Jesus, you know? We we kind of saw that when we were growing up, but now it's very clear what he was trying to do. He's trying to make a name for himself. They rejected him. Often what happens when we become a Christian is things get worse in life. Our money is not... Our, our bank accounts don't necessarily get bigger. Our relationships don't necessarily get better. They often get worse. Jesus said that they will hate you because of me. They will persecute you because they persecuted me. Well, that doesn't seem like a very lucky set of circumstances. But that's the true nation, true nature of Christ, the Christian life. Second reason why Christians are not more fortunate or luckier than non-Christians is because we would miss out on the truly beautiful stories of God's grace against the backdrop of such difficult suffering. 
We would miss out on stories like Stephen because Stephen would live instead of a he would instead of dying as a martyr, he would live a long and prosperous life, and we would miss out on the great story of Stephen and the great story of Paul. All the suffering that he had to face and how he stood faithful to God despite all that. We would miss that because he wouldn't have had all those difficult circumstances, would he? We would miss out on Old Testament believers like Noah and Moses and Joseph and Elijah and Nehemiah and lots of other men and women who stood strong despite the opposition that they were facing, despite the, the suffering despite the unlucky circumstances that were taking place in their lives. We would miss out on all that. And those are the stories that highlight God's grace, His mercy. Have you experienced that for yourself? Have you been able to stand up in the midst of trial and be a token of God's grace to people around you? If the life of every Christian were a life of perpetual good luck, we would have no way to explain the death of Jesus. We would not be able to explain it. I mean, it would have been lucky for him to reign as king like he wanted to, to not be opposed, to have everybody in subjection, for him to overcome his oppressors, the Romans, the, the, the oppressors of the Jewish people. But for some reason that didn't work out. I don't know how to explain it. Somehow he died. It was unlucky. But okay, we would have no way to explain it. And then there's no hope for us. Because if our Savior died as a result of supposedly unlucky circumstances, then what hope is there for us? And then finally, if the life of every Christian were a life of perpetual good luck, our service to God would be very shallow. Our service to God would be very shallow. We would serve God only as long as things were going well. We would not trust in God for His inscrutable ways. Our confidence would not be in God, but in our works. So that if I want good things to happen in my life, then I will do good things. And as long as I'm doing good things, then I will get my works. I will get my these good things happening to me. God's going to bless me materially. So that now God hasn't become the end goal in our lives, that is to know God, to love God, to worship God, but rather He's become a means to an end. The end is our satisfaction in the, joy, in, in the pleasures of this life. So God, You're helpful as long as You keep giving me material things. See how shallow that is as a Christian? If you think about it, it's a very polytheistic way of looking at life. It is... It's not that there's one God who is in control of all things, but rather there are lots of many smaller gods like you and me because we are gods over our own lives. We can control how our lives turn out. We can bring about blessing for ourselves. We don't have to trust God to set Him aside. We're all our own little gods. We bring about our own luck, so to speak. It's the idea of what goes around comes around, right? It's the it's the idea of you know you'll whatever you give to someone else is going to come back to you. That nonsense that 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 uh, some sort of karma going on. That as long as we're doing good, good will come back to us. If we do bad, then we should expect bad to come back to us. It's not the way that life is ordered. We think that we're gods in our own little world. And if that were the case, 
If we were all our own little gods, then there would still be, by the way, many unexplained things in life. Like the flipping of a coin. Who, who, who's responsible for that? The, the shuffling of a deck of cards and passing them out. The weather. The you know, sickness that comes to people. And so, in order to explain all these things, we'd have to come up with more gods. The god of sickness. The god of card playing, right? The, the sports gods, like people say. You know, the gods are really looking down on me today to help me. So, I control my own little world. I'm my own god. You control your own little world. You're your own god. And then we have these other gods that help us out where we can't fit in, fill in the gaps. But the Bible teaches us something completely different from what our sinful natures want to believe and from what our sinful culture teaches us. They try to ingrain in our mind, and that is that the Bible teaches us that, the, that God is the creator of all. He is the ruler of all. And when I say all, I mean all here. That not one square inch of the universe is outside of God's sovereignty, His providential rule. Not one square inch. He not only knows what is happening every time at all times, but He has planned it to happen as it does. Everything. There's no strokes of luck. There is no sheer chance. There's no series of fortunate events. And what this teaches us is that our God is not impulsive. He's not reactionary. He's not waiting for us to make the next move. Let's see, is this person going to be faithful to me or not? Is this person going to deserve the blessings that they get or not? It shows that God is not waiting on us or on Satan to make the next move, but He is already accomplish, accomplishing what He wants because only His move matters. And I think the reason that we want to believe in luck is because we don't want to believe many of the bad events in life can be attributed to God. We don't want to attribute the bad events in life to a good God. I hope you recognize that we are in a battle. A battle in our minds and a battle for our souls. But I also hope that you recognize that God is not. He's not in a battle for where He's going to go, where His next move is going to be. God is in complete control. He has everything under control. It's not that He overlooks the bad things in the world or that He just kind of waves a wand over them and says, no, those are actually good. And it's not that we know that He's not the agent of those bad things. But every dark story, every dark circumstance in life is planned by God. We may not understand what He's doing, but we can be confident that He is doing what is best to spread the fame of His glory and to accomplish sanctification in His people. Now, How can we understand this? What's a helpful way to think about God's responsibility over the evil things in life? It's helped me to think about, about it with this picture, that God is weaving a tapestry And from God's perspective, it is a beautiful uh, work of art that is coming together as a result of His sovereign, pre-planned will. But we, as God is building that tapestry, are looking at it 
like we would be looking at a tapestry from the bottom. And we see all the hanging threads and the places where the colors don't seem to go together properly. We don't see what the big picture is really coming together to look like. But one day we will. One day we will see the beauty of what God has been doing even as He allows the evil things to take place in our lives. And as a result, we will praise God for His beauty. And God will make all things beautiful in His time. Each each strand of sorrow has a place within the tapestry of grace. We don't understand why those strands of sorrow are there. But within God's large tapestry of grace, it has a purpose. And look, sheer chance is a man-made way of explaining away the unexplained events in life and only is necessary if we don't have a Christian worldview. A worldview that says that God is in control of all things. That no one can thwart the plans of God so that every lot that is cast is determined by God. Every roll of the dice, every flip of the coin, every shuffling of a deck, every unexplained event that happens in life, all those things, from our perspective, don't make sense. And we want to attribute them to some of these ideas. But ultimately, they are controlled by God, aren't they? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your tapestry of grace. And we've gotten a glimpse of what it is to live within that uh, framework, within Your beautiful design for how we ought to live. We've got a glimpse because we've seen how the, the, the darkest thread of sorrow was used to bring about the greatest grace. And that is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one would ever have thought to weave that thread into such a beautiful tapestry. We would, we would leave that part out. Why, why kill the King of all kings? But we now understand from this side of the cross that You did that because You had a purpose for all people. You had a purpose for Jesus. And it was to exalt Him to place above every created being and the pathway for His exaltation was through the cross. We also recognize that the beauty of that strand of sorrow was used to bring about life for us and for millions and perhaps billions of other people throughout all time. And so we, we can see that. But we can't see these other strands of sorrow, why they, how they fit into the picture. We don't see your purpose in, in allowing the events that took place in Connecticut to take place. We don't know why 9-11 took place. We don't know why the world wars took place. But we do know that you're in control of all those things. And just like you can use the evilest actions of men to accomplish great good like You did on the cross, 
we believe that you can use the evilest actions of men in our day to bring about great good as well. And so we trust you. Lord, forgive us for trying to explain away things that ought to be just given over to mystery, that that we are finite. We can't know fully and finally why you do things. As humans, we want to know. We want to have control. We want to be able to explain everything that there is in life. But it is those unexplained things that, that really humble us and require us to depend upon You. And that's what we seek to do. So forgive us for trusting in our own mind, our, our own thoughts and ideas to the exclusion of, of Your will, Your desire, the mystery of Your mind, that Your ways are higher than our ways just as the heavens are higher than the earth. May help us to trust in Your inscrutable ways not to leave everything to ignorance and just give everything over. You certainly have revealed the reasons for why many things happen. And so we want to understand where you have given us the capability and the, and the revelation to understand. But, but where those things are not revealed, help us not to speak on behalf of you where you have not spoken, but rather to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.